Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We're back in Delaware this week, switching things up. This time I'm going to give a paranormal story, and Nicole will be giving the true crime story. Super excited for this true crime story this week. I hope you like it. I had a lot of trouble with my paranormal story. Oh, really? Yes. I just dove right into one that I thought was cool. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it just ended up being way too short. (laughs) And as I finished it at midnight last night, I was like, fuck, now I'm going to have to find something else. So I started doing one again. And at one o'clock, I was just like, I need my bed. I'll finish tomorrow. Well, I hope you finished because... I did finish because we're kind of doing this. All right, let's do it. Let's do this. What do you have for us today? All right, our first stop is in Dover, Delaware, which is the state capital and the second largest city in Delaware. We're headed to the U.S. Post Office on Lockerman Plaza to talk about the first time the U.S. Postal Service was used to commit murder. Ooh. Right? Murder by mail? I like that. Yeah. It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting story, so I hope... No one uses the mail anymore. <laughs> I use the mail sometimes for those three bills that I can't pay online. That's true. I do, too. <laughs> or I go there in person, which is even worse. What? Yes. Uh-uh. It's also the only time I write out freaking checks. I need my anonymity. <laughs> All right. So uh, our story starts in 1891 with Mr. John Dunning, who was a well-regarded war reporter. He had met and fallen in love with Mary Elizabeth Pennington, the daughter of a congressman a uh, very popular congressman from the state of Delaware named John Pennington. Uh, in 1891, they actually did get married. Shortly afterwards, the couple moves across the country to San Francisco because John Dunning got a job as the day manager for the Associated Press San Francisco Bureau. So it's a pretty great job for, nice. for a young war reporter. I'd love to live in San Francisco, but it's too right? expensive. Right. It's a gorgeous place to live. It's fun to visit. It's beautiful to visit, yeah. Uh, they recommend it. So once the Dunnings are in San Francisco, they have a daughter, and life seems pretty darn perfect for a few years. Then, uh, one day in 1895, when Dunning is enjoying a relaxing bike ride through Golden Gate Park, his bike breaks down. He pulls it over near a bench to fix it. How does it. your bike break down? I mean, your chain could slip off. Oh, uh, okay. I, didn't, I don't actually know what happens. Because yeah, that you weren't there. I wasn't there. I don't have the time machine quite up and or running so yet. so you say. Shh, don't spill my secrets. So he he breaks his bike and Dunning pulls it up next to a bench and there happens to be a lady sitting on the bench and he strikes up a conversation with her as he starts fixing his bike. Come to find out her name is Mrs. Cordelia Botkin and Dunning is absolutely captivated by her charming persona and the fun story she tells him about the seedier and perhaps sleazier side of San Francisco. Nice. Now, Cordelia Botkin is a very um, bold woman. And she actually is married to a grain broker who does not live in San Francisco with her. He lives in Stockton, taking care of business. Meanwhile, she's kind of living the sort of like high life in San Francisco, staying at hotels, that sort of thing. As the two begin talking, they uh, arrange to meet later. And eventually they start having an illicit affair, despite them both being married. Through Cordelia, Dunning starts to explore the seedier side of San Francisco himself. So he starts going out at night more. He starts gambling. He starts drinking really heavily. And eventually he's even fired from his job at the Associated Press under the suspicion that he embezzled a few thousand dollars to pay off these gambling debts that oh, he kept shit. accruing. Yep. Yep. Well, Cordelia is a wonderful influence totally, on him. Totally, totally. What is his wife doing? Oh, well, Mary Elizabeth is at home with their daughter, and she's a very 
you know, prim, proper, like, post-Victorian lady. And she's completely just over it and gets fed up. And she's humiliated that her husband's carrying on this very blatant affair with this other woman. She decides to take their daughter and she moves back into her parents' house in Dover. So she goes back to Delaware. Okay. That doesn't really phase Dunning whatsoever. His wife leaves him and he's like, all right, well, Cordelia, baby, I'm moving in. Uh-oh. So he starts living with Cordelia uh, and they continue their carousing and their wild nightlife. And that goes on for the next couple of years until 1898 when Dunning is somehow rehired by the Associated Press as a war correspondent for the Spanish-American War. So at this point, Dunning's like, you know, maybe leaving my wife and kid and, you know, kind of living the high life isn't really what I want to do with my life. Oh, sure. Think of that now. Yeah, now. That he has a job and a way out. Yeah. So he uh, decides to end his affair with Cordelia, and she is absolutely heartbroken, like, just, like, tries to convince him to stay, and he's like, nope, I'm sorry. It's over. I'm done. It's been fun. Later. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Cordelia. Bye, Cordelia. (laughs) And, uh... (laughs) So Dunning, you know, ends his affair with Cordelia and he reaches out to his wife, Mary Elizabeth, to reconcile before he leaves for Cuba to start covering the war. Uh, Mary Elizabeth is kind of like, oh, okay, well, we'll see how it goes, but I'm still staying in, De- in Delaware with my parents and our daughter. Once you finish whatever you need to do for your, to stabilize your job, I guess he had to win back his good reputation yeah after embezzling he completely just sullied all of that so yeah so she's like what if you can do that then we can get back together he's like fine perfect all right great and short time after that mary elizabeth starts receiving these really alarming anonymous letters all all postmarked from san francisco claiming that her husband is still having affairs with numerous beautiful women and that mary elizabeth should really reconsider reconciling with her husband that's from cordelia oh For real. (laughs) Like, that's like a no-brainer, right? So Mary Elizabeth wasn't having any of it, and she just kind of gets fed up with getting these, like, letters in the mail. And she decides to keep them, but she gives them to her father and tells him, hey, if you you get any more of these letters, just, I don't want to see them, you just take them out of the mail. And he agrees to it. Then, on August 8th, 1898... I wrote 1989 in my notes by accident there. <laughs> <laughs> then on August 8th in 1898. It would have been uh, really old by that point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Mary Elizabeth receives a package containing this elegant cambric handkerchief, very, very fine linen handkerchief, uh, a box of chocolate bonbons, and a note that says, quote, with love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C. Uh-oh. So Mary Elizabeth. Don't eat those. Wow. Mary Elizabeth is like, oh, they're from my friend, Miss Laura Corbelli who was the one person that she kept in touch with while okay. from living in San Francisco. She's like, oh, she must have, you know, found these and sent them to me because she knows how much I love chocolates. Later that evening, after a lovely family dinner, Mary Elizabeth and her family retired to the veranda at the Pennington house to cool off in the summer heat because it's August. And they're all sitting out there. And she remembers the chocolates that she got from her friend. And Mary Elizabeth has, like, no reservations about popping that box open, taking a couple couple handfuls for herself and then passing it around to everybody she's sitting on the porch with. So her sister has some, oh, shit. Um, her daughter, <laughs> her niece, and two of the younger neighbors who had stopped by to visit after dinner also have some. Her mother and her father don't, though, because her mother doesn't eat sweets and her father preferred to smoke his pipe after dinner versus having some kind of dessert. So 
They're all indulging on these chocolates on the porch. A few hours later, all six of the people who unfortunately ate the candy start experiencing stomach pain and vomiting. Uh, that's great. Yeah, not the best. Like, that's like, oof, dinner party gone wrong. Yeah, absolutely, especially if they only have one bathroom. <sighs> well, I mean, it's the 1890s, so who the hell knows? They probably don't even have one bathroom. <laughs> so they call a physician because people are, like, puking and in pain. And the physician, com- physician comes over and diagnoses their illness as cholera morbus, which is basically what we call food poisoning. Yeah, okay. Um, cholera morboris mor- is really pretty common at this point in time because not everybody has things, like, not everybody has refrigeration in their homes, and, like, that's a primary cause of food poisoning is, like, that unsafe temperature. So physician's like, you know what? It'll pass. If you're not better by tomorrow, let me know. Everyone eventually recovers except for Mary Elizabeth and her sister. They were the two that ate most of the candy out of the box, and over the next couple of days, their symptoms get worse until both women sadly die of their ailment. Oh, shit. Yeah. Life is not like a box of chocolates. No, well, I mean, or if is it is, it? that would be a really shitty life, yeah. It could be. Actually, more huh. the more I think about wow, it. Wow, now I need that, to watch that movie again. That holds up. <laughs> All right. So their, daughter, their father, John Pennington, is absolutely grief-stricken, and he obviously suspects foul play. So he has the remaining candy analyzed, and the testing confirms that the candy was tainted with arsenic. At this point, Mr. Pennington contacts the Dover police. When word of his wife reaches him in Cuba, John Dunning immediately returns to Delaware. When he reaches the home of Mr. Pennington, he's shown the letter and the handwritten note that accompanied the letters, like all the crazy anonymous letters. Yeah. And the handwritten note that came with the box of chocolates. He immediately takes one look at the handwriting and says one word, Cordelia. Well, okay, there's everyone's suspicions. Confirmed, guys. Confirmed, guys. So the Dover police contact the San Francisco police chief who personally led the investigation against Cordelia Botkin. The police uh, have the paper that was used to wrap the candy, and they trace it back to George Haas Confectionaries in San Francisco. And there they find a clerk who remembers selling chocolate bonbons to a woman who fits Cordelia's physical description. Then the police find a clerk at Al Drugstore, also in San Francisco, and they remember selling arsenic to a woman who also resembled Cordelia. So you have these two clerks who are basically saying, yep, that lady that you described totally sold these products to her. Lastly... The police take the letters and the note that was included with the chocolates to a handwriting analyst who reviews them and confirms the suspicion that both of the notes were written by the same person. So they take that Cordelia. Take that Cordelia. Even worse for Cordelia, though. They get a sample of her handwriting from letters that she had sent John Dunning begging him to come back to her, and they compared that to the anonymous letters in the box of the note from the box of chocolates, and they all match. Oh, okay. So they basically have this, like, circumstantial evidence that, yes, Cordelia pretty much is responsible for this murder, these these two murders. No, they just need actual proof. Exactly. So in October 1898, a grand jury in San Francisco is called, and they're presented with the evidence. And even though it's only circumstantial, they still feel there's enough evidence to bring an indictment for two counts of first-degree murder against Cordelia Botkin. The whole time, Cordelia is maintaining her innocence, obviously. So this story's pretty damn sensational already. Yeah. And the press I mean, picks up you know, on it. don't think of chocolate as a murder no, weapon. or the mail. Yeah, that's true. So the, the San Francisco Examiner and the local newspaper in Dover pick up this story, and they start to, to uh, report on it pretty heavily because it involves, you know, wealthy people. It has sex. It has drugs, poison. Rock and roll. A little bit of rock and roll. Actually, no. But <laughs> it has the, has the Spanish-American War just as sexy as rock and roll. Absolutely. 
And uh, <laughs> so they start calling this the Chocolate Candy Murders, which has a nice Which is to a it. really great title. I feel like that would be a really good... Uh, I watched that movie. By the way, my notes for my story also go a little bit into the Spanish-American War. <gasps> Delaware, your heyday was during the Spanish-American Apparently, War. Apparently, yeah. I mean, mostly this is the War of 1812. No, some of it, the beginning was... It was the American Civil War that most of it takes place during. Okay. Okay. So different wars? Different wars. Lots of wars. This thing has been through many wars, but we'll get to that when we get to my story. Sorry. I tried to hijack you. I'm pretty excited because I think I almost did that haunted story too. (laughs) So at the trial, the prosecutors ship out most of the Pennington family and most of Mary Elizabeth's relations, folks who were there. Her father testifies about receiving the anonymous letters and the poisonous box of chocolates and goes through and, and tells the court about his daughter's sudden and agonizing death. John Dunning also testifies in court that he had a sordid affair with Cordelia and he remembers that he shared several details about his wife with Cordelia, one of those being that she was, quote, passionately fond of candy. Interestingly enough, the defense who were trying to discredit John Dunning tried to get him to admit to having affairs with other women at the same time he was having an affair with Cordelia. Like, that would matter. Yeah. And uh, he refused to name them in court and was held in contempt, put into jail. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of, like, crazy drama built into this story. I'm just summarizing it because we only have so much time. That's true. So We've got all the time in the world. Go for it. All the time in the world. So there's a bunch of evidence against Cordelia. She's pretty much easily convicted. The only thing that her defense team could do after the failure to kind of soil John Dunning's name any more than he already soiled it himself was to put Cordelia on the stand. So she gets onto the stand, and at first she seems very independent and bold and assertive, her normal Cordelia self. Yeah. And her defense lawyers are like, can you just tone it down a wee bit? <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit more friendly, a little bit more docile, you know. Smile at the jury. Yeah, smile. Yeah. Smize. you got to smile. Flash him a little thigh if you need to. <gasps> Scandal. Maybe ankle back then. I don't know. <laughs> so she kind of calms down a little bit on the stand and she admits that she did buy arsenic, but she bought it in June. And Mary Elizabeth and her sister were poisoned in August. And that she also did not buy the powdered type of arsenic that was found on the candy. She bought a crystalline type because she was using it to bleach a straw hat. That was her excuse for buying the Do arsenic. people use arsenic for that? I don't know. I feel like arsenic's one of those weird things where I know it's a poison, but I don't know... What else it's used for. Exactly. Other than like, the fact that it's, like, in apple seeds. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like you always have that bottle of, like, bleach or borax into the sink, but you're like, I'm not sure what I do with this other than that one thing that I use this for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Cordelia also produces some alibis to prove that she did not purchase that candy or mail that package. However, when the prosecution does some cross-examination on her alibis, they completely fall apart. Of course they do. Ah, Cordelia. She's all just like, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) I did not eat those chocolates. Did not send any chocolates. I don't even know what chocolate looks like. Chocolates are. So Cordelia's pretty much screwed. After a couple hours of deliberation, the jury finds her guilty. Surprise. And they recommend life in prison. And this is one of the tidbits of this story that I was like, what? This is amazing. So Cordelia doesn't get sent to a state prison. She gets kept at the local Branch County prison to serve her life sentence, which is okay. a, like county prisons are a little bit less rough. Than, they are. Yeah. Than an actual penitentiary. So things seem to be going well. But then a few months later, 
One Sunday, the judge who presided over the case is out shopping in downtown San Francisco. And who does he see? None other than Mrs. Cordelia Botkin. Oh, crap. Turns out that she is somehow being released randomly from the prison grounds. So the judge is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What? He does. He launches an investigation immediately and uncovers evidence that Cordelia has been exchanging sexual sexual favors. Of course she has. Yep. <laughs> for extra comforts in the jail and for the freedom to leave prison grounds. What the fuck? <laughs> She's quite a woman. She's definitely that. A whole lot of woman. Oh, I was about to say a whole lot of woman, too. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, her lawyers are busy trying to appeal her conviction, and they actually do get the first conviction overturned because of a procedural error. And the reason there was this procedural error was because it was a kind of groundbreaking murder trial, aside yeah. from being used, aside from the fact that it used the mail, because the actual crime itself happened in Delaware. Because that's where the bodies were. That's where the people were poisoned. But everyone else is in San Francisco. Right. And the actual, like, beginning of the murder, like, the activation, the gathering of the weapons, the plotting of it all took place in California. Yeah. So. So what state can really. Try her. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there was kind of this, like, back and forth between the states and, like, you know, Mary Elizabeth's father, because he's, like, a congressman from Delaware, is like, we should try them in Delaware. That's what the bodies are, blah, blah, blah. I would say Delaware, definitely. But then again, you could charge them for the actual murder in Delaware and charge them for conspiracy to commit murder in um, San Francisco instead. It's true. It's true. And I think it's interesting because this is before we had, like, state extradition laws really well-defined in the U.S. Yeah. So this actually did go a long way to create that need Make it more pressing because it's such a sensationalized story. Oh, yeah. Um, but eventually they defined a law that made it clear that it's easier to try her in San Francisco because that is where the initial murderous acts occurred versus yeah. the outcome. So her second trial starts in 1904. And on August 2nd, 1904, she's again sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Mary Elizabeth and her sister. Ha ha. Womp Sorry. Now, after the debacle with the Branch County Prison, Cordelia Botkins is transferred to San Quentin State Prison, where she remained until her death. Only a few years later, she actually died uh, in March of 1910. Oh, 1910? That's not right. 1910. I like it. <laughs> 1910. She, she died in March of 1910. End quote, which is like the most Victorian Edwardian death I've ever yes. heard. <laughs> we shouldn't die of ennui. Yeah. Second best. Second best thing. <laughs> um, she was only 56 years old, which is pretty startling. That's, yeah. Yeah, so all that craziness is happening with this, like, you know, basically, like, lady in her 40s being crazy That's... and rich and just living the high life and wanting her man back. Being the sl- Living the slutty life. Won't judge. Yeah, well, I, I mean, won't slut shame. I'll just say she was. Hey, this isn't slut shame. One she's, hell of a woman. She's using sex as a weapon. That's a completely different thing. <laughs> Bear and those chocolates, though. That's chocolate candy murders. Any thoughts? Uh, just that it makes me think twice about eating a box of chocolates, even though I don't normally do that anyway, because most of them are gross. Fair. Yeah. I feel like it's definitely gonna like uh, impact my Christmas gift receipt. Where you're like, oh, I got this lovely, don't eat the cookies. <laughs> the first Valentine's Day that Joe and I were together, he was like, oh, I've never really had anyone on Valentine's Day. And I was like, yeah, I barely did either. So this would be fun. And I bought him because I knew he really liked, what are they called? Rolos? Is that? The ones with the, they're like the brown, they have the caramel yeah. inside. Yeah. I bought him like a big, like heart-shaped box of those. Wait, quick question. Caramel or caramel? 
Both. I say both, honestly. Excellent. Continue. Um, and then we were talking about it, and I was hoping that he'd buy me, like, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup ones, because mm-hmm. I wanted that. But then I was like, here, I didn't want to get you just a stupid box of assorted chocolate, because they normally suck, and there's normally, like, only six in the thing. So here you go, a whole bunch of Rolos. And then he's like, oh, um, well, and pulls out this heart-shaped assortment box of <gasps> candies that only had no. about six in there. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and he probably paid more for his than I paid for mine. <laughs> uh, so what's the moral of that story? Um, just don't get assortments of chocolate, especially if they happen to be laced with arsenic. Fair enough, fair enough. All right. I think it's time for a quick pit stop, yeah? I think it is, too, because it's snacks. really hot in here now, and I want the air conditioning on for a minute. <laughs> road snacks! Pit stop! See you in a bit. All right, we are back. And uh, my computer finally booted up, so that's good. Winning. Hashtag winning. Yes. Um, like before when it was hashtag major losing. Ugh. Worst week ever. This, yeah, oh, this week has been horrible. Yeah, it's been a week. I hope you guys have had a better week this week than we have. But to cheer us up, I have a delightful story of a nice little haunting for you. Excellent. The state of Delaware is said to be one of the most haunted states in the U.S., despite being so freaking tiny. All the ghosts live in Delaware. Exactly. That's just where ghosts like to go, hang out. It's the discount shopping. Yes. And also, there's no lack of Civil War ghosts throughout the original colonies, so my story today will take you back in time on a place called Peapatch Island, which is off the coast of Delaware City, which housed a fort during the war. Well, a lot of wars. And yes, Peapatch is a very funny name. So... Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Thought I was somewhere else and back in the 90s. Anyway, this is the tale of Fort Delaware. Fort Delaware. I'm so happy you did Fort Delaware. It is uh, the place that kept coming up in my research when I was looking for a haunted place. I'm like, oh, Fort, haunted forts. I'm like, they're so freaking spooky. Originally, my story was going to be the Addy Sea, which is in Bethany Beach, uh, which is right next to Rehoboth, which is my favorite beach. It was really cool, but like I said, too short. So we're going to save that for an extra episode for the Patreon people. Cool. So, Fort Delaware was built between 1846 and 1868, uh, the current one anyway, and sits on 288 acres. That's huge. It's really massive. The island it sets upon emerged as a mud bank in the Delaware River in the 18th century and supposedly got its name when a ship carrying peas ran aground on it spilling its contents everywhere, and caused peas to grow all over the island. At least we know the boys at the fort were not starving. Well. Well, I mean, actually they were, but we'll get to that later. Uh, They weren't originally, anyway. They got peas for days. Yes. And originally, it was owned by a guy named Dr. Henry Gale, who was a very wealthy man from New Jersey. He used the island for hunting. However, the government wanted his land. So, they offered him some money for it, and he haggled a bit until the government just said, Guess what? It's ours now. Get the fuck out. It's called eminent domain, motherfucker. So, because, you know, this certainly isn't the first time that's ever happened in America. Never. never. Not at all. This is a nice island you have here. How about some glass beads for it? (laughs) So, the island started its military uses as far back as the War of 1812. Its location made it ideal for defense since it was between Newcastle... Delaware City, and Philadelphia, and also very close to New Jersey as well. Okay, so it's like perfectly set up as like a protection in that little triangle area. Yeah, it could protect all of that area. 
In fact, it was meant as a replacement for Fort Mifflin, since it hadn't fared so well when it was attacked during the Revolutionary War. Uh, they decided they needed something farther away from Philadelphia, so that's why they chose the island. And Fort Mifflin's like right in Philly, right? Yes, right on the Delaware? I think so. It's been a while since I was in school, so... <laughs> fair, fair enough. So, they began building a seawall and dikes around the island at this time, but didn't really do anything else with it. And before anyone jumps on me for saying dikes, it's just another word for dam, and that is D-A-M, dam, not the swear. So I said nothing inappropriate there. I'm trying not to heart laugh because you keep talking about dikes and dams and dikes and dams and dental dams and oh my uh, maybe we didn't talk about dental dams before but <laughs> anyway so well now I'm gonna say another funny word okay first you got me at the pea patch island which I giggled about <laughs> I have the sensibilities of like a sixth grader then you're talking about dikes and dams let me take a moment okay go ahead okay so now here if you're definitely in the mind of a sixth grader here we go a wooden fort would be erected on the island from 1814 to 1824, followed by a star fort or bastion fort in 1817. Bastion. Oh, not like a never-ending story, never mind. Yeah. (laughs) So, they ran into some problems with this iteration of the fort, however, and the the building of the fort was delayed several times. One instance, an entire section of 43,000 bricks had to be torn down. If that isn't a reason to haunt this place, I don't know what is. There's nothing like (laughs) thinking you're done with something and realizing you have to start all over. Like what happened to me as I finished my original story for this episode. (laughs) Anyway, apparently even after it was quote-unquote done, it was inspected and found not to be up to snuff, causing them to yet again redo everything. Captain Babcock... (laughs) Oh my god, okay, fine. Fine, just laugh. (laughs) Captain Babcock, who had been partly in charge of the construction, was actually taken to court over altering the designer Joseph G. Totten's designs without any orders to do so. Mm. He was acquitted, but it still happened. Did you come across anything in your research that said why he altered them? I guess he just didn't like it. Oh, he's like, this doesn't make sense. You can't protect this fort. Exactly. So he's just like, here you go. I'm going to change things. So this is far from the end of Fort Delaware's many constructions, nor its non-war-related issues. In 1831, a man named Lieutenant Stephen Tuttle was sent to inspect the problems with the fort's foundation. And no sooner did he get there than did a fire start originating from his quarters. Mm. And it was a bad one, too, because it started around 1030 at night and lasted until the following morning. Dang. So obviously the place was not in a fit state to house the two companies that were currently staying there, and they were moved to the Federal Arsenal in Newcastle. After this, a man named Richard Delafield, who had been chosen as Babcock's, Babcock's replacement after he fucked everything up and nearly got himself jailed, asked for $10,000 to tear down the remnants of the fort and start over again. Wait, like $10,000 in like the 1830s? Yeah. That's like Boku bucks. That's a lot of money, yeah. They decided to use the rubble that was left to reinforce the seawall because recycling is kind of awesome. Well, I mean, good for them. Uh, so after the, uh, the Star Fort, there was the Polygonal Fort, the Pentagonal Fort, and probably a bunch of other shapes as well. But for the sake of time, I won't go into all of that. But I do hope there was a rhombus fort at some point. Because I just like the word rhombus. Or dodecahedron. Dodecahedron is another fun one. So obviously, 
they kept building and changing this fort until they ran out of shapes, but one major structural issue was still the foundation. It needed to be deeper because everything on this damn island was mud, and said mud ran about 40 feet deep, and finally under that was the sand. Oh yeah, you can't really build on mud and sand. It's Nope. They ended up having to use a, uh, like a steam-powered pile driver, or several of them, to place long piles, which look like modern-day telephone poles according to Wikipedia, into the ground for some stability. But when they tested that, it didn't even end up working half of the time once they put enough weight on it. So the structure that came with its final incarnation is certainly a massive one. As I mentioned in the beginning, this place now takes up 288 acres of land. Its walls in spots are 32 feet high, and the walls range in thickness from 7 feet to 20 feet. Wow. Yep. There were tunnels built under the structure as well. There's also a big moat around it with only a drawbridge as access across. It's like a serious fort. Yep. From its shitty beginnings, this has become one hell of a fort. (laughs) Now. It's a damn fine fort. Yes. Yes, it is. So this fort was also used in the Spanish-American War, like I said during your story. Oh, yeah. When I hijacked you by accident. As well as both world wars. But we'll mostly be concentrating on its use in the Civil War. So that's like right after they figured out all this like structural yeah. mamajamas? Yeah. So remember how I said that it was built to defend Delaware City, Newcastle, and Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Well, screw that because they just decided to use it as a prison camp for prisoners of war, federal soldiers, convicted of crimes, and privateers. Oh. I'm so glad they spent all that money. Exactly. Yeah. The first prisoners were housed in empty powder magazines, which is a building where gunpowder is stored. Sealed off casements and two small rooms inside the sally port. And a sally port is a sealed, controlled entryway to a fort or a prison. Okay. So I guess this is both. Interesting. It can also be used to mean a dock where boats pick up people or cargo from ships anchored offshore, but that definition is mostly used in Great Britain. So that's okay. not what we're talking about here. As you do when you're in prison, convicts would carve their names onto the walls, and in these spots you can still see some of these in the fort today. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Definitely cool historical shit Mm -hmm. for sad times. So the fort ended up housing around 33,000 prisoners. What? Yep. That's like a small town or city. Certain sources said 32,000, but I mean, that's not really a big difference. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. whatever. There were, as expected, since this place is haunted as fuck, or for Twitter users, hashtag HAF, (laughs) there were quite a large number of deaths in this fort. The first person to die there was a Confederate soldier from Virginia named Captain L.P. Holloway. He was captured on March 23rd, 1862, and died on April 9th of 1862. So, same year. That's only 17 days in this place. Wow. The conditions were not great. And by the end of the war, around 2,500 people had died in this fort. The biggest killer of these people was smallpox, which killed around half of them. The other causes were inflammation of the lungs, diarrhea, typhoid, malaria, scurvy, pneumonia, and erysipelas, which is a strep infection that gets like on a scratch or an open wound, which leads to a rash and then, I guess, death. Uh, It can be caught, apparently, from handling raw fish. Well, that's terrifying. Yeah. Also, malnourishment was a big cause of death there as well. Beyond those leading causes, five prisoners drowned that we know of, and seven died of gunshot wounds. There were also 109 Union soldiers and 40 civilians who also died on this island. So it kind of sounds like you have this massive fort with far too many people in it. 
Yes. And then all of the problems that go along with a bunch of people in a small contained area kind of sounds like they definitely ran rampant during the Civil War. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of overcrowding. There was a lot of just horrible things altogether. Numerous people even tried to escape, you know, because first of all, no one likes being a prisoner, but you especially don't like being a prisoner there. So they tried to escape the island, but it's a fucking island, so they had to swim across the Delaware. Uh, but as far as my research has shown, they all drowned. That's a bummer. So prisoners were also only given two small meals per day, but they were sometimes allowed to fish for more food, which is probably where the um, erysipelas uh, came from. Yeah. That makes sense. So prisoners were also given dirty water to drink. Cool. Because that's never ended badly anywhere. No. I mean, that's probably the dysentery and everything Mm -hmm. else. Uh, They would be tortured for information. And the guards were also dicks. And they would do something they called rat calls, which is where mice and rats would be thrown in with the prisoners and they would fight over them for food. That's fucking gross and awful. If the best cuisine this place could muster was raw rats and mice then I'm not giving them a good Yelp review at all. (laughs) No stars. Nope. So, and like, the guards got their kicks from freaking watching these prisoners fight for the scraps. I think that speaks volumes about the kind of place this is. And yet it also kind of reminds me of the first season of Survivor. I remember seeing the, like, the previews and they're all just like, I'm eating rats. Is that the one where Richard Hatch was naked the whole time? Yes. I never really watched the show, but of course everyone remembers that. So also in the tunnels... Beneath the fort, it was rumored that prisoners would be tortured as well down there. That reminds me of, what is that? Uh, oh, that movie with Kevin Bacon, Murder in the First, where it's like Alcatraz. Oh, And he yeah. gets put in the hole. I only remember because Mia Kirshner's in it. Oh, of course we all love Mia Kirshner. <laughs> now for the meat and potatoes of the episode, the ghosts. Yes. Many ghosts haunt the grounds and halls of Fort Delaware. One such ghost is that of James Archer who was a Confederate general who, because of his status, was given pretty much free reign over the fort, unlike the other prisoners. He would walk around freely, according to one source, as long as he promised not to escape. (laughs) So I don't know what kind of ninny decided to allow that, especially with how cruel they were to everyone else. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, But he was also very sick, so they figured that he didn't have long to live anyway. Yeah, plus I can kind of see them being like, well, he is a general, and these other guys who are probably being tortured with the rat calls or, yeah. you're, you know, probably these poor, you know, infantrymen who pretty much I no think. one gives a hell about. So. The rat's ass about. The rat's Except ass the rat's about. ass that they throw in with them. <laughs> <sighs> oh, that was bad. And I feel bad about myself for saying it. But oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so because he could freely roam in life, his presence can be felt all over Fort Delaware, especially in the tunnels under the fort. He's said to be seen walking around as well, but that's more rare. Usually, if you do see him, he's hiding and just peeking around a corner and will quickly disappear. So he's a shy ghost. Hmm. Down in the tunnels, a cannon can also be heard firing. Did you hear that car alarm? You mean that cannon? The cannon, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, perfect timing. Anyway, so cannon can be heard firing. People have also reported moaning coming from the tunnels, and rocks on the ground are thrown by an unseen entity. Oh, shit. Or several, who knows. The ghost of Private Stefano, one of the guards, is said to haunt the fort. He died going up the main stairs to the fort one day when he slipped and cracked his head open. The stairs had been wet with rainwater, and he just wasn't paying attention, I guess, trying to get somewhere fast, and slip. Boom. Yep. So... People also hear banging coming from those stairs now, uh, which is attributed to him, and his ghost can be seen at the bottom of the stairs. There's said to be a ghost of one of the mess hall workers 
who still cleans the spot where the mantle once was, and he walks through a door that has been bricked up, so he's just, like, residual energy, basically. Yeah. He just follows the path he did in life. In the kitchen, there's a really weird one. The kitchen has a female ghost, probably one of the cooks, and she looks like a cook, uh, who just walks around checking the pots and pans. She'll scrub some of them. Um, she also, um, showed up once during a reenactment to check the soup that was being made. What? That's amazing! Um, she's only ever been seen in the kitchen or when someone is talking about the kitchen. She just, like, randomly shows up. Boom. The weird thing with her is she's, seems like she's part residual energy and part actual ghost. Hmm. Because she'll walk through a door, like, without opening it, walk, and walk through, like, parts that are, like, boarded up now and stuff like that. But she will interact with the pots and pans. Weird. And actually clean them. So is she also a Civil War ghost? Yeah, she was there um, during the war. She was the cook. Okay. Huh. Yeah, so that's a a really interesting one because I've never heard of a ghost doing both of those things. Things like chains rattling can be heard throughout the fort, which, you know, no surprise there with prisoners. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is also a soldier in the tunnel that's said to be dripping wet as if he was trying to escape and is still dripping with the water from his failed swim across the Delaware. On the show Most Haunted, which I watched a little of for this, they called this man Arthur Whiteside. And they verified that and said that he did die, like, in somewhere in 1860-something, I believe. Huh. Uh, loud bangs and crashes can be heard all over the fort with n- for no apparent reason. People experience cold spots, and there's orbs and apparitions and pictures taken at the fort. Disembodied voices can be heard throughout, so lots of, unusual, lots of like, the usual haunting stuff okay. happens there. Ghosts also tug at the clothes of people walking around in the tunnels. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's not happening. Mm-mm. Nope. That's a big nope. Now, most of the dead are actually buried in Finns Point, New Jersey, but seem to find their way back to Fort Delaware, probably because of all the negative crap that happened there over the years. Uh, ghosts tend to be attached to things or places they either loved or hated, and this is a prime example of the latter. Fair. Because I doubt anyone loved it there, except maybe some of the guards. This place has been investigated by several paranormal groups, including TAPS, which is the Ghost Hunters people, and also people from the show Most Haunted, like I mentioned. Okay. Uh, so today the fort is used for tours and not a whole lot else. Uh, they offer ghost tours and also three or five hour paranormal investigations that you can just go and do. Really? So yeah. like if you had your own paranormal investigation crew, yeah, you can call fine folks at Fort Delaware and be like, hi, I let the schedule a three or five hour session. Pretty much. I think they do it in like a big group. Okay. Because, um, like, a lot of places have, like, their paranormal weekends, and some of them will even, like, give you, like, here's an EMF detector. Have fun. Oh, you know, stuff cool. like that. I think that's more what it is. Uh, all in all, I think that Fort Delaware sounds like a pretty good time for any amateur or professional ghost hunter. Yeah, I think that'd be a great stop if you're, like, doing, like, the haunted tour of the, I guess, mid-Atlantic region, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be really fun to go there. But at the same time, like, I don't know if I want things pulling up my clothes and I'm down uh, the tunnels. Yeah. I feel like the tunnels is the place where I'm like, no, I'm cool up here. I don't need to get rocks thrown at me. No, thanks. I don't need to be stoned. I did enough of that in college. No. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally going to be stoned. <laughs> and that is my story. I like it. Um, I am glad you did it. Like I said before, it kept popping up as a suggestion for me when I was doing my initial preliminary research on Delaware. I didn't get too far into it. I just knew that it was like kind of like a hellish Civil War prison. Yeah. I had no idea it had that many ghosts and weird it apparitions. Has, yeah, and it has a lot of ghosts and a lot of horrible things that were going on there. 
they definitely did not treat the prisoners very well at all. I wonder how many more Civil War prisons we're going to come across. Probably a lot. I mean, when we're doing this area anyway, any of the original colonies. Oh, Civil War. Yeah. And also, like, Virginia and stuff will be big on, like, lots of, like, ghosts, too. Like, Revolutionary War ghosts and stuff like that, too. I'm going to go out of my way to to not do the Civil War. Yeah. I'm going to go out of my way to try to find something that's not... I I try to stay away from it, too. I mean, none of us, neither of us did uh, Gettysburg when we... Because that's just, like, it's been done so many times. Plus, it's also, it's like, yeah, of course, like, so many people die there. Exactly. And but pretty much all the ghosts are there are just residual energy. It's just people marching. That's pretty much it. I've been there. The only thing I've seen were people marching. That's it. Like people? Like or ghosts? ghosts. Oh. I was say, I saw people marching, and they were marching around ugly monuments. No, they're <laughs> not ugly. I'm t- I'll take that back. That's not true. You take that back right now. They're scattered monuments all around, and I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Gettysburg, it's fun and the all. The Rex Museum's terrifying. It's really? Like, when I went there as a, as a kid, I just remember because they have it set up where it's like the build-up to the Civil War, so they have a bunch of different incidences. Yeah. And one of them is talking about the Underground Railroad and like you round the corner and you come like face to face with this like wax figure behind glass. It's like right in front of your face and it's like, blah, blah. That's like, oh shit, what is that? Yeah. I definitely was like, I don't, I jumped. See, I don't know. Like wax museums are really weird because some of them look really lifelike. It's one of my favorite things, actually. I will, if we're someplace that has a wax museum, like either like Madame Tussauds or uh, Louis Tussauds, like the one in Niagara Falls, a fantastic Louis Tussauds museum. Because it has all your normal celebrities and stuff. Yeah. But then it just has really weird things, like a oh, diner cool. that's, like, set up, and it's, like, Humphrey Bogart, and then, like, you know... Oh, nice. A couple other, like, random people from the 40s, and this, like... It's supposed to be set up, like, Night- Nighthawks Diner. Yeah, but I, I like it. it. Also, I really love the fact that at a wax museum, you can, like, pose with all the wax figures. And, that's pretty cool. And do s- silly, cheesy, you know. That'd be really neat. Um, I've never actually... Or maybe I have. I don't know. I don't think I've been to a wax museum. We're going. They always seem really creepy, and I will definitely go. Excellent, excellent. I will definitely go. That is our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it, so I'm sure everyone else enjoyed it, too. And I enjoyed it as well. <laughs> a good time was had by all. A good time was had by every single one of you. Um, so I guess it's time for our pluggables. I guess so. If you like what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the two Roadside Horror Show. And if you can, tell anyone and everyone about our little endeavor here. Also, if you give a five-star rating, it really helps because then we'll be, like, especially with, what's it called, the iTunes, not iTunes, but Apple Podcasts? Yeah, yeah Apple that's Podcasts. It. Yeah. With Apple Podcasts, the way it works is really five-star reviews are the only ones that matter, and they will bring you close to the top of, like, the searches mm-hmm. when people search, so it's a lot easier for people to find us if we get really good reviews. I didn't know that. That's cool. So please, like and review us. Yes. It's very <laughs> important, actually. If you want to contact us, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. Uh, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for designing our lovely logo that you can see on all our social media properties. And we'd like to thank E. Massey for composing our theme song as well as our outro as well. As well as our outro as well. Great. I speak English good. <laughs> I can't even... It's been a week. It's been a week. It's been a week. All right, guys. Well, we will see you next week. Um, 
I can't say stay spooky. That's that's Jim Jim Harold's thing. We need to think of like a good like goodbye thing. Until until next time. Yeah, that's Keep so boring. Keep on trucking. That's bear. It's terrible too. We'll think of it and get back to you guys. Hold on, I can do this. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there has to be a cool sign off. There does have to be a cool sign off, but not this week. Until next time, gang. Yeah. See we'll ya. talk to you soon.